and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means a place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments amongst them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Well, you have those words in front of you in your booklets, in your center page of the program. Do you keep that open as we think about this coronation of the King, the Sovereign, who through his suffering is our Savior. Now, the coronation of a king is very soon to be filling our news screens and our newspapers. Charles III will be crowned in a matter of weeks on Saturday the 6th of May. It will be a grand event, full of ceremony and pomp. But Charles' coronation is not the most significant coronation we'll be marking this year. In fact, it doesn't even come close. There is a coronation which stands at the very epicenter of human history, and it's the coronation that we have just read about. 
It's a coronation very unlike the one we're soon to witness in Westminster Abbey, but it's a coronation nonetheless. These words we've just read from Mark's Gospel, they are the very climax of the whole of Mark's account. This is the moment to which the whole thing has been building, namely the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God on a cross. But it's not just the central event in Mark's account. This is the central event in all of human history, in all of cosmic history. This is the central moment. You see, this was the moment first promised way back by God's promise to humanity, way back in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3. God promised that there would be one day someone who would deliver the decisive blow to the great enemy of God's people and to free his people from sin and from death. Here, in this chapter, as Jesus dies, as the sovereign suffers, he saves his people and wins them forgiveness for sin and freedom from death and everlasting life. What we are, in fact, reading here is the coronation of the king. This is far more substantial, far more majestic than the coronation we're going to see in a few weeks' time done in London. And that is perhaps surprising because what we seem to be reading here Rather than being a coronation of a king, it seems to be, at first glance, the crucifixion of a humiliated man. That's what we seem to read. But in reality, this is the Lord's procession to his throne. Because this is a chapter all about Jesus the King, the King who suffers to save his people. And this is the King we all need. And we all need to bow down to him, because he is the King who, through his own suffering offers you and me life, everlasting life. Mark is showing us here in these words, the sovereign who suffers in order to save. So three very simple points. First, Jesus the sovereign. Mark is at pains to make it clear that Jesus is the king. Again and again in this chapter we have reference to the king, the king of the Jews. Six times we have mention of the king of the Jews or the king of Israel. And when he's asked straight up by Pilate, look at verse 2. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, you have said so. But it's not just all these references to the king of the Jews that makes it clear that this is the sovereign coming to his throne. The passage is steeped in royal imagery. The events that are taking place here take place in the royal palace. Notice verse 16. The soldiers led him inside the palace. And they there drape over his shoulders in royal colors of purple, a robe. They make for him a crown, not of gold, but a crown of thorns. They bow down to him, but they mock as they do so. They pretend to pray homage. They seek to humiliate him. But Mark is clear that despite all the appearances and all the humiliation and the suffering, 
and ultimately his crucifixion. Despite all that, Jesus is king. And Mark shows us that he's not king despite his suffering, but rather because of it. Jesus is a king unlike any other. Not only is he the king of kings, but he is a king who suffers, a king who is crucified. And the fact that he is king, that is hugely significant. If Jesus, if the man we're reading about here, was just another man amongst the thousands of others who are crucified by the Romans, then it really is of little significance to anyone. Yes, it's a tragic event, a seemingly innocent man put to death, It would have been very sad for his immediate family and friends. But it would have been of almost no relevance to anybody else beyond those people, and certainly not to us, living 2,000 years later and 3,000 miles away. So who Jesus is, is of ultimate importance. And Mark, if you read through the account, has been showing us who Jesus is all the way through. He's showing us who this man really is. And Mark is showing us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the Messiah, the Christ. That is, he is God's anointed king. And he's come to rescue. That has been one of the key notes all the way through the gospel. If you were here a couple of weeks ago to watch the Mark drama, you'd have seen Mark's gospel put out in front of us. And that is clear as you see and as you hear what Mark is saying. Jesus is God's king. And with the coming of Jesus, God's king has arrived. And he's arrived with a very clear mission. He has come to rescue his people from their sins and to win for them forgiveness and eternal life. See, Jesus is not just some other man. He is the promised king. A king with a mission. And his mission was ultimately to suffer and to die and to rise again. As God's king, Jesus is the suffering servant who gives his life so that our sins can be forgiven. And that's the focus in the second half of Mark's gospel. As you read through, you can't miss the fact that Jesus is on a journey to the cross. He is the sovereign, he is the king, but he's the sovereign who suffers. That's our second point, the sovereign who suffers. Now, as you were listening to that being read, it's obvious, isn't it? There is humiliation and suffering. It's evident. But it was no accident. This was always the plan. Mark shows us that Jesus is not God's king despite the suffering he endures, but because of it. Just listen again to the words of his executioner. These were the the last words in our reading a moment ago. Verse 39, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the son of God. Of God. See, this centurion, he has come to see the fullness of who Jesus is. He saw and understood that he wasn't just some other man, but 
He was the Son of God. The Son of God had died on a Roman cross. And the way in which Jesus had died, the darkness that came over the whole land, the words that Jesus spoke, all these lead the centurion to the conclusion that this was the Son of God. He is the King, and He is demonstrably the King because of the way in which He suffers. You see, the fact that Jesus suffers does not prevent the centurion from seeing him as the king. Rather, it's because of his suffering that the centurion comes to that conclusion. He sees him for who he really is. And consider, too, the build-up to this point in Mark's Gospel, where again and again Jesus has predicted these exact events. Again and again he says, this is exactly what's going to happen. This was no unplanned disaster. This is not plan B or C. No, Mark chapter 15 was plan A. Listen to what Jesus himself said earlier in Mark's gospel. He's speaking to his followers. And here's what he says. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him. And spit on him. And flog him. And kill him. And after three days. He will rise. See Jesus is in total control. None of what we've read in chapter 15 here. Was in any way a surprise for Jesus. In fact it was the total opposite. It was the plan. It was a plan he articulated at least three times, according to Mark. It had to happen this way because it was his mission. Yes, Jesus is the sovereign. He is God's promised king, but he is the king who came to suffer. It was his very purpose to come and to suffer and to die. But why? Why did Jesus have to come and suffer? Well, that's our third point. He came to save. Jesus is the sovereign who came to suffer in order to save. Jesus suffers. He is forsaken so that we would be forgiven. See, only the sovereign can do that. Only the sovereign can save because our offense is primarily against him, the king of the universe. Only he can save us. In order to do that, in order to save us, he had to suffer. And that is the significance of the two signs we get towards the end of the passage. The first sign was the darkness that consumed the whole land for three hours. The second sign was the curtain of the temple being torn in two. The darkness, we read about that there in verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. You see, the darkness is significant because it is indicative of the darkening of the sun on judgment day. It's a darkening that Jesus speaks of earlier in chapter 13. He said, but in those days, 
After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. See, Jesus is talking there about the day of judgment when we will all stand before our Creator, the Creator of heaven and earth. We will stand before Him and we will face the final judgment and God will judge sin. And at this moment, as Jesus was on the cross, God was pouring out all his wrath against sin on his own son. That is the significance of the darkness. See, Jesus is drinking from the cup of wrath that he feared so that we wouldn't have to. His death atones for it, pays for the price for sin. And you see, our sin... You see, our sin is more serious than we dare to admit or think. You see, our sin is a full-on assault against our King and Creator. It deserves punishment. We deserve punishment and we deserve death, according to the Bible. And yet, what we are seeing here is that Jesus pays the price for sin through his own death. This is what Jesus came to do, that we might be saved. And the death that he tasted here, the death we read of, was death in all its horror for all the wages of sin. In that moment, he tasted death for every man, drinking the bitter cup to the very dregs for our sake. This is a scene of judgment. The darkness shows us that. A holy God turns his face away from his own son as he bore in his own body the sins of the world. You see, sin separates. That's the teaching of Scripture. And when the Son of God, who was perfect, was made sin for us, he bore the consequences of the sin. And he endured the separation from God that it must entail. See, the darkness that we see here was symbolic of the blackness of darkness that is separation from God and the crushing weight that he bore there, the separation from God, which our sins deserved, were were crowded together on these hours on Jesus on the cross. He's bearing the full weight of the Father's wrath for our sin. And here we see Jesus, our sovereign walking that dark path of suffering and separation so that we would not have to endure it. The darkness is darker than we can ever understand. And Jesus endured it. He endured the Father turning his face away, crying out, Why have you forsaken me? Well, that's the first of the signs we see, the darkness, the judgment that was poured out on Jesus. The second sign, in verse 38, was the torn curtain. Just look at it there, verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. 
And this tearing of the curtain is hugely significant because that curtain symbolized the separation between God and humanity. This curtain hung at the entrance to the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. And that Holy of Holies was a a small, sacred space symbolizing God's presence. And only the high priest could go in there, and only once a year. And so the significance of Jesus' death as the once-for-all atoning sacrifice for sin, means that access into the presence of God is no longer restricted to once a year by the high priest. But now, the curtain's torn, access is unrestricted and available to all who trust in Jesus. You see, his death absorbed God's wrath, opened up the way to the holy place so that we might be saved, so that we might once again have access to God. You see, he died the death that we deserve to die so that we might live, so that we might know God, have access to him. And in this way, you see, Jesus stands in our place. Jesus is our substitute. He stands in the place that we deserve to. And that is the very vivid illustration that we have earlier in the passage with that prisoner exchange before the crucifixion. Let's look back there to verse 6 in that paragraph. And we read there about a man called Barabbas. Barabbas is a very real illustration of the fact that Jesus is a substitute standing there on our behalf. This chap, Barabbas, he was a pretty rough character, a murderer, an insurrectionist, and he was destined for crucifixion. He knew he deserved to die. But Pilate's offer there His offer of clemency was made. And the crowd, well, they want their man. They want Barabbas. And in a very literal sense, Jesus took Barabbas' place. He went to the cross and he paid the price for Barabbas' sins. See, the price for Barabbas' freedom is Jesus' death. Jesus dies, Barabbas goes free. It costs Barabbas nothing. But Jesus... Well, it cost him everything. The innocent was punished. The guilty man goes free. And that, you see, is the very heart of the gospel. That exchange is at the very heart of the gospel. And that is the very source of my hope and yours. You see, all of us in our natural state are guilty. We are deserving of punishment. We all stand guilty like Barabbas. But like Barabbas, we can, through no merit of our own, we can go free. Barabbas, there was no grounds upon which he was eligible for freedom. It was not his merit, was it? And it's not ours. Like Barabbas, Jesus can stand in our place. 
And in these events of Good Friday, these events we've been reading about, hearing about, in these events we see the God of glory on the cross. For our sin, he bears the loss. That's the glory of the cross. Jesus is the sovereign who suffered that we might be saved. And so the question must be asked, will you have him as your king? Will you come to him and admit your own failure and sin and rejection of him? Because that is what the Bible tells us our natural state is. We are dead in sin, we are opposed to him, we will not have him. But will you? Will you come to him, admit your own failure and sin? Will you accept the sacrifice that Jesus has made on your behalf? Will you seek his forgiveness? Will you have Jesus as your sovereign and saviour? To do that, to admit our sin, to confess it, that is so hard, isn't it, for us? We are often so proud, so entrenched in our sin, we can't bring ourselves to bow the knee before him. But if you've never done that before, if you've never bowed the knee, then you must He commands us to. But it is a loving command. You see, he loves each and every person on this planet. And his great desire is that all would hear his command and repent and follow him. And you see, for all who do that, for all who come, he will gladly receive He will welcome you into his eternal family. And let me tell you, there is no greater joy to be had in this world than to humble yourself before the King and to follow Jesus. He is the sovereign, yes, but he came to suffer that you might be saved. That is why Jesus came. That is what we remember on Good Friday. And so he appeals to you. He commands you. Repent and believe. And so know forgiveness for your sin and know eternal life.